Hi, I am Tingan, and this is the Parents in Tech Podcast. Welcome to Season 1, where we interview mums who are technology company leaders based in Southeast Asia. We want to hear stories, hopes, challenges, and tips from mums who are raising kids while pursuing their career aspirations. In this episode, we speak to Lynette, Chief Executive and Board Member of Singapore Space and Technology. Lynette started a career in the Singapore government and pharmaceuticals before leaping into the fascinating world of space. She has been featured by Fortune and CNBC for powering some of the world's most innovative space startups. Recently, she was appointed Carmen Fellow, a prestigious fellowship recognizing outstanding accomplishments in space. Lynette is a mum of two, with a daughter aged 10 and a son aged 8. Hi Lynette, welcome to the Parents in Tech show. To begin with, can you tell us a bit more about your family? I have two kids and my husband. So it's quite a standard, typical Singapore family. I have a boy and a girl, which is really nice for social experiments. Nice. How old are they? Well, one is 10 and the other is 8. Okay, so they're at the primary school age. Yeah. Very nice. So Lynette, you have a really exciting and interesting job, one that's certainly non-conventional. So how do you explain your job to your children? Well, interestingly, at that age group, they have very vivid imagination and it's their prerogative to imagine, to dream of the impossible. But nothing is really strange to them. So I don't think they're very fascinated by my job, sadly. (laughs) Not yet, maybe. But I'm curious, how do you explain when they ask you, what does mom do at work? We talk to them about how we want to create dreams. We talk to them about creating exciting future for science experiments, for children, for students. So I think in that regard, maybe they think my job is very boring because it's about a lot of discovery, which is what they do every day. And a lot about stars and the sky and space. So I think I talked to them in a way which was about creating a future, creating something that is meaningful for humanity and mankind. And maybe I've forgotten my childhood. But yeah, it doesn't seem so odd to them that you want to change and make the world a better place. (laughs) That's nice. I think it's always that uh, sense of possibility that is in children. And somehow as we grow up, we, we start to lose that. But it's always good to have children to remind us on that. So Lynette, maybe walk us through how did you get into this job? How did you get into this industry? Because that's pretty unconventional. So I'm sure that our audience would love to hear your journey to where you are today. Yeah, I I do get asked that a lot. You know, initially, I tend to tell people, oh, it happened quite naturally because naturally enthusiastic about science and math. Then somehow I got thinking deeper about my childhood. And I I think it was probably largely because when I was very young uh, in kindergarten, my father would always tell me stories about inventors, scientists, and they tend to be people who stood by what they believed, you know, even when the society didn't understand or didn't agree with what they were doing. And he would always say, why can't someone do something? Why not go for what you believe in? And why not go ahead and just listen to what you think is right as how these people did? And eventually they go on to make you know, great discoveries that change the way we see the world today, that change the way we see things. You know, sometimes literally, right? like the inventor of the telescope. So I think maybe that kind of philosophy was very deeply ingrained in me. 
And why not? So despite what you mentioned about this being an unconventional industry, it never bothered me because it was like, you know, why not? I think it is interesting. I think it is fascinating. In fact, I think it brings great possibilities to so many people, so many enterprises, and it brings great benefits to how we could monitor global scale developments such as climate change. So maybe with this why not mentality, the flip side is the can-do mentality, right? But I remember my father telling me, why not? Why can't we do this? We can do this. Perhaps it was that that never allowed the unconventionality or the oddness of the industry to bother me, which really helped me to focus on getting the role done well, getting the mission done well, and being deliberate in advocating the work that I do so that more of us can be inspired to have far-reaching ambition and not be bothered and perturbed by what's conventional and what's not. That's wonderful. It sounds like a big part of where you are right now in your professional life was shaped by your father. And what stands out to me is, well, you are local, you grew up in a local environment, Asian parents. That really breaks the mold, the stereotype of tiger parenting, don't explore, figure out, and do well in school. But instead, to inspire this, why not this can-do spirit? So, Lynette, now that you are a parent over the past 8 to 10 years, how has that shaped your parenting style? (laughs) I'm laughing because... There's always a journey where you go, I don't want to do what my parents did to me, but you always end up doing what your parents did to you, to your kids. So I was very grateful. My parents had things they had to do. They would certainly not dragon parents. And I like to think I'm not. So I do give my children safety aside, right? So safety cannot be compromised. I do give them quite a wide latitude in certain things. Interestingly, I do try to limit digital time, right? Screen time. So maybe that's a new thing because that in the old days, it was the TV that was the screen time. So now the screen time takes place in many different exciting shapes and sizes. I do safety and screen time, strict no-nos, controlled, limited. But otherwise, I do give them a wide latitude to do many different things. But you see, that's just me, right? Then there is the better half with his set of parenting. So I don't think he's as generous, which is really nice because then it ends up being a super good balance for my children. Okay, there's so much to unpack over there, but let's start with, you mentioned you give them a wide latitude to explore. Could you share maybe one or two things they have explored and they liked or they didn't like? My son who is eight, because I didn't like too much digital screen time, he asked to go for coding class, right? So for six months, he lobbied for that. So eventually I gave in and I compromised. I said, okay, go for coding class and glue yourself to the screen all you want. And I think they they always have a lot of time pre-COVID and even during COVID to a very generous extent where possible. Go out with their friends, you know, the neighbours. It's like an open house. They play a lot at the neighbours' place. The neighbours play at our place. They play together where possible, you know, given the COVID restrictions. And it was just make sure you finish your homework and then go and play. And I think they don't really like assessment books. We experimented with that. We decided not to kill any trees and buy too many. (laughs) So I think they could decide how they want to learn after school. They could decide where they want to spend time in. That's giving them student agency and giving them the control of what they want to learn after school. Do they want to pick up more social skills, you know, learn about teamwork with their friends? Or do they just want to do their own things? 
one of them prefers to do their own things. So I, I, we don't really force them to try to be this or try to be that, right? They have to discover themselves. That's wonderful. So it's providing them the platform for discovery. But maybe now talk to me a, a bit about detention or rather the differences you have with your husband on this issue. What is his style? What is his view? And where did the disagreements lie? I'm seeing it with biased lenses. So I... <laughs> <laughs> I explain it from my point of view. Uh, I think tension can be positive or destructive, depending on how it is managed. And tension always impossible, right? You know, I know there were these crazy scientists, as my father shared with me, who did what they did. But sometimes these kind of tension and resistance helps to provide better clarity of your thoughts and ideas. So maybe something that was left wild may not end up being something useful or constructive or productive. But in the presence of certain resistance or tension, it does help to make things better. And I've seen it happen so many times in meetings and discussions and projects. You know, we all come with our different views, but you know, if something is well moderated, these different views come in to make the final concept just so much better. Completely agree with that. Maybe Lynette, could you tell us one issue, one topic which you and your husband worked through together, right? Where there was tension and how that was uh, positively resolved. Well, I think I don't give them too many tests, right? I think there's this exam sets you by, and then you can give it to your kids to practice for exams. The dad like think that, oh, you know, that sounds correct, which is sounds correct, right? I think I did that for O-levels or A-levels. Like, there's this 10-year series we do. Iran. Yes, yes. I have done that also for all the major exams. <laughs> and left such indelible memory in all of us. So I will probably sit down with them. If I give them a worksheet, I like to sit down with them and look at how they're thinking, look at their workings and think through it, which is really time-consuming. And we're both working parents. So I think the daddy style is more of, okay, I'm going to give it to you and you're just going to do it and I'll pick up the paper in one hour's time. So like a real mock exam, which I don't agree with. But I can see the benefits of it because it's about, you know, finding your own way to solve your problems. Then I realize how, oh, actually I do helicopter parenting because I sit down there when they do their work and I see what they're writing and I see what they're thinking. And when I think things are going amiss, I come in to change it. And that might be not always useful because you need them to figure it out. Like take a blank sheet of paper and learn to figure it out. And if you're stuck, learn that you can go to the next question without having someone next to you all the time to guide you because I'm not going to be there for them all the time. So that turned out to be a very deep realization for me that I also need to let go a lot more. That's nice. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's about being open to stand in, in your partner's perspective and also consider where they're coming from. I'm glad to hear that that was something that both you and your husband were able to work out. Now, let's dial a bit back, Lynette. You also talk about two things that were non-negotiable. Safety, which I think we all all as parents agree on. But the second thing is interesting, digital time, right? And of course, we grew up in a digital age. Our jobs are in technology. Tell me a bit more about your stance on screen time and how you have went about parenting your children because I'm sure they, you have gone through the phases, maybe one, maybe multiple, where they really wanted screens and you had to say no. Yeah, that's like every day. <laughs> <laughs> that was easier pre-COVID because the reliance on digital tools were lesser. Then, of course, during COVID, classes went online. There was SLS. I think these are familiar terms. Every primary school parent would know Padlet. So that became quite hard. I, I think at some point, I just gave up, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> at some point, I'm just like, well, I just have to trust you guys. I'm working. And obviously, I've learned not to hover around too much. I'm working. You know what schoolwork you have. You know what is online and what's not online. So go figure. And I find that learning journey for the kids also quite interesting because couple of kids' ears. So you know how we could always go to the history to check what they're looking at? And once I overheard my kids talking about how that can be erased, I was really amused. I got a bit concerned, like, oh no, you said you're on SLS, were you really on SLS? And then I overheard them saying, you know, you could do this and this and this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I was impressed with the ability to seek knowledge for their desire. Kids are smart these days, right? <laughs> I was also very worried. <laughs> but I think I just had to let go, right? Well, maybe Lynette, if you remember, when did you first expose your son and your daughter to screens? And what kind of screen was it? Was it TV, iPad, iPhone, computer? Like, maybe take us back, if you can recall, how that journey started. I don't really live under a rock. <laughs> so they, they've been exposed to screen time very early on. It's just how many hours they spend in front of it. So when they were even toddlers, you know, two years old, I think they have all these YouTube channels with the wheels on the bus going round and round and spinning in my head the whole day. So they've definitely been exposed to screen time very early on. I also did those things where they watch screen time when we're eating just because the both of them were really young eight years ago. There are certain compromises I do allow myself to make. They didn't live under a rock. It's just I don't give them free access to it. It's controlled. Two hours, just two days, one hour or 45 minutes today. Yeah, so setting their cadence, but I think COVID also definitely made that more challenging, right? Because now they have excuse to, to use their devices a lot more than before. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Well, thanks for that, Lynette. We also talked about coding classes, right? It was a six-month campaign by your son <laughs> to go for coding classes. Tell us a bit more about what the campaign looked like. What were your initial reasons for not agreeing to it right away? Well, I'll also make a confession here and hopefully some parents feel better. I didn't really want to bring him to coding because then it's also like another schedule. You have to bring him somewhere every week. And, you know, we like to keep our weekends free and easy just so we could just chill at home, visit relatives, right, where possible. I don't like to schedule classes in particular that require me to send them and send them back. So there were selfish reasons. I hope maybe I can find some soulmates out there who agree. Okay, so he just kept repeating it, I think. He wasn't super assertive. He just kept repeating it like, oh, you know, maybe I should go for a coding class. Or he would say, you know, I want to learn to be a hacker. And of course, I say a good one, okay? He's like, yeah, a good hacker. I want to learn about hacking. And I think because cartoons these days, they have more digital tools, devices. They show how children heroes solve problems because they go into a computer and did something. So that left a strong impression on him. And to be fair, both children watch very similar cartoons, right? But one of them picked it up more than the other. He would talk about it a lot more. And I started then researching into a coding class with compatible timing for me. So finally, I think, you know, after six months, he still talked about, I want to be able to learn how to use a computer and I want to be able to do all these things. There were in-school lessons where they talk about the Scratch and the Roblox, right? And he was really very interested in it. So he did talk a lot about it after school. And therefore, I decided that I will let him try it out and discover because he seemed very consistent with this particular interest. 
that's wonderful. And I think that process of not just saying yes right away, but making sure that's something he really, really wants, that certainly is. You don't know that there's so many coding schools out there. Talk us through that research journey and how you ultimately made your decision. I guess a part of it was that schedule, but what else? Yeah, schedule, you know, the location to make sure it's convenient for us so that in case I can't do it or the dad can't do it, it's easy for someone else to step into make the delivery. <laughs> also coding along with arts classes and many of these enrichment classes are quite, there are many of them, right? And because Singapore is such a small market, there's many impact on the word of mouth. And I feel generally after many years, there's a certain basic level that all schools somehow adopt as best practices, which is the right thing to do. So I don't get too worried about whether it's going to be really dodgy or, or not. I feel that generally when there's a strong demand for something, such as coding classes, there's a base standard that most centers adhere to. So it really was a matter of you know how convenient it was and the timing for sure. So we could still have family time over the weekend. Mm, certainly. The challenge with such classes, I haven't experienced it myself. I'm already preparing myself. It's sending there takes them like 20, 30 minutes if you count the changing and everything. Then it's only one hour and you got to figure out, do you go home <laughs> or do you hang out? And then the day you got to pick them up, right? Yeah, exactly. And and that whole journey is so stressful. Right? Yeah, you probably reprimand like yelling at the kids a little bit, like hurry up, we're going to be late for class. And you know, 20 minutes is an optimistic frame of time. Sometimes it can be 30 to 35 minutes because they might be distracted with something else. Then I don't really want to spend some mornings yelling over rushing to a class for an eight-year-old kid. It's important to find something that works not just for your children, but for you too. I did go for a swim class with my then four-month-old daughter. I had to wake up at 8 a.m. on a Saturday. And after a few classes, my wife and I were like, yeah, we got to take care of ourselves. Right? 8 a.m. on a Saturday is a little too, too brutal. Yeah. Again, this is where, you know, what your parents did to you, then you don't want to, but you do it to your children. I think I always remembered moments when my parents spent time with me. So when I was very young, my father also sent me to computer class, right? So those days, you know, very fundamental computer technology. And we had to travel so far to a place. Uh, I don't even remember which day of the week it was. But I always only remembered the journey there where he was with me and my brother and the journey back where he would buy snacks for us. Sometimes we go for late McDonald's snacks. I don't really remember much of the class. For children, it's a lot about their memories and moments with parents. And we are at a healthy age, we're able, which is precious, right? Our health will diminish as they grow up. It's, I mean, we've seen that, we all, we all experience it. And the things I do with them will be so different when they're adults and when I'm an old woman. I think that kind of mortality should put things into perspective on how we invest time with our children. So even driving him or her to a place, is it like, do we walk there, which I really like if it's possible and not too hot, then we do spend a lot of time talking. Uh, or is it just like, you know, shoving him into a car, belting him out and then dropping him off and then bye, you know. I think a lot about these moments with the children. Thanks for sharing that, Lynette. I think that's golden because... Yeah, truly, while all these enrichment, all these classes, all these activities are certainly good and positive for the children, it's important to reflect on how that shapes the relationship between the parent and the child. 
beyond just the benefit that they're getting for the classes. And that's really refreshing to hear. So thanks for doing that. Now, when we met also, we spoke on how traditional parenting and family stereotypes still exist today. What are perhaps some of the stereotypes, whether at work, outside of work, in your interactions, that you have seen or experienced? I only became more conscious of it in the last few years when I was advocating for women in STEM, young ladies in STEM. And instead of just advocating it from experience, I did quite a bit of reading on different literatures, on studies, on education levels of women, on why they don't stay in the workforce. And there are many abundant literature out there for consumption. This was an important learning journey for me because I start to be able to unpack what I've been experiencing into very specific stereotypes or subconscious biases that I actually was very, very guilty of even myself. And okay, then to take a step back, to be fair, because now I become more sensitive to it. I do notice the trends changing. So some of these things might not be real in a few years' time, which would be really great. I think there's generally an assumption that when the woman is pregnant, they would need more time off, they need more time to relax. People don't realize that the daddies also need time off to relax. It's like, oh, you know, it's business as usual for the fathers. And that has a few impact, right, in that the society not acknowledging the father's role in parenting and therefore not providing the implicit support for the father to support the mother, which then has a knock-on effect of putting everything onto the burden of the mother. And it's just because we assume men's life would go on as usual. They'll come to work at 9am, you know, after the birth of the child. And all these parent uh, paternal leave, very, very recent development. And but I think they are definitely good steps, you know, in the right direction because the family unit, you know, the father, the mother, the child, they are all together. So the signals you send to the father affects the signals you send to the mother and then therefore to the child going into the next generation. So I'm really happy to see these days it's very acknowledged that, oh, the father needs to take time off, you know, to look after the child. Uh, The father needs to take time off to be there. And I think one thing when I spoke to you about was also that don't get too upset, but looking at the child as a evolving product, right? The life cycle. And I have to admit in my point of view, and if Stan corrected, I'm happy to be. I think when the child is in the infant early stage, they do need more maternal support. So maybe at that, you know, one to five years of age, there's more maternal intervention. The mother is around a lot more. But from K2 onwards, I think... Actually, because a kid is more active, you know, there's more role actually for the father to come in and be a role model, to influence, to talk to the children. There's a lot more role for that. I analyzed it from a way where women could come back to the workforce, right? So all about optimizing the society's needs, the economic needs, certainly the family's needs and the child's needs and the mother's needs and the father's needs. It's all about optimizing it. So for example, when they are in the zero to one, very intuitively, a lot of mothers know what to do with the kids. Okay, it doesn't apply to everybody, okay? But more often than not, it's more intuitive for the mother. Then, of course, if you luck it out and you get like a super dad, right? Congratulations to you, mom. But more dads are a little bit more awkward at that stage. So maybe also no point flogging a dead horse and forcing them to do certain things. But when the kid is in the K2 and older, I think, you know, this is when daddies should really super step up and take over a lot more. And to be able to ease the burden on the mother who could then very comfortably go back, focus a lot on career if she wants to or if she wishes to and let the career take off. So these are some self-learning journey and reflections I've had. I hope it's useful. It doesn't work for everybody. I think I'm talking to the mommy guilt that so many of us feel when we go back to the workforce. I think we need to learn to share 
the responsibilities. And I feel I'm never going to win it all. And I just want to make sure the father gets an important role in the upbringing of the children. And my children get exposure to both parents. And that I also have time for myself to do the things I enjoy. That is really powerful, Lynette. And I completely agree. In that sense, there are seasons where a mom steps up and equally there should be seasons where dads step up. I completely agree with you, even though it's uh, hard to admit and sometimes I'm a bit embarrassed, but it's true. Especially when a kid first comes around, dads, at least for me, I really did not know what to do. I was even afraid to hold my newborn, like afraid that I would like drop her or break a bone <laughs> in the process. But I think for, for my wife, it was a lot more natural. But like you said also, when they start to grow up, they start to run around, they start to have a lot more energy. I think that's an opportunity for dads to really come in. Now, Lina, you, you said you looked at a bit of research, quite a fair bit of research as to why don't women stay in the workforce. Maybe could you just summarize a bit of the learnings and takeaways that you have found? I think one main reason is the women being perceived as a default caregiver for children and for elderly parents. And we do that, right? Even at, in the adult age when we are brothers and sisters, you know, we have to bring the parents for checkups. More often than not, we assume the sisters, the daughters would do it, which means the daughters, if they're working, takes leave off to do it. Then by implication, you can take leave from your career, but not the sons or the brothers. So maybe that, the women being the default caregiver, can change to make things more equitable. Then of course, if you just have a son, then that's just it. When there tend to be boys and girls, daughters and sons, there is an expectation the daughter would do it. Which I, I don't, I mean, I do it, but I don't agree. It should only be the daughter's responsibilities. So maybe being conscious about who brings the parents for the checkup, you know, or when the child is sick, we assume the mother would take leave. And I think that doesn't have to be the case. That being the default caregiver role is there. Of course, there are men who are very, very willing to do it as there are women who are very, very willing to do it. So I think we are all reasonable adults. What I'm trying to do is just to bring, call out certain biasness in our actions that we might not even be aware of. And I think the, the second part is the guilt trip that tends to hit mothers more than the dad. So actually, when my second kid was born, I did take time out. I'm like, oh, I, you know, I can't be away from them for more than like 10 hours. You know, I don't think it's fair to them. I did take a year out, right? And obviously true to many fellow seasoned mummies, you're not going to stay at home for more than a year, Lynette. And I know I'm going to. And sure enough, I crawled back to the workforce and I'm really happy with that decision. But everyone is different. I've also had, you know, very close friends who took a time out and they're really, really happy with it, right? Men or women. So I think the point here is not to have too much subconscious biasness, you know, societal expectations on us, but to listen to what we want and be brave and be confident that this is the right thing to do. Be it a mother returning to the workforce, be it a mother not returning to the workforce, be it a father staying at home to look after the kid, the father being the default one to bring the kid to the hospital or the clinic, and being confident that this is the right thing to do. You know, if that's how your family unit function. I think a lot of times the women feels bad having to ask the father, the daddies to take leave to bring the son to the clinic or the kid to the clinic. They feel bad. So I think we don't have to feel bad. Maybe they're very happy to take time off from a meeting with a horrible boss, you know, with a very legitimate, compassionate excuse. I think when I stop feeling bad, 
I was able to make that adjustment in my actions and consequently it did make the work share more equitable and give more sense of responsibility to the other part, which is important. Yeah. So Lynette, what was perhaps one area or one topic that you had this conversation with your husband over and in what roles or capacities has he helped with that transition and and stepped up? My husband, he likes to stay healthy and fit. So anything that's outdoor goes straight into his territory and domain, right? I like to do more indoor sports, you know, swimming. And if you're swimming, you can't really look at the kid too much. And he's very proud of his SAF heritage. I think when there's like army open days, those open houses, and he's he's like, he gets really excited. He he wants to bring my daughter goes there. My son definitely goes there. And they all have a good time. And I don't feel guilty I'm not there, you know, because that wasn't really my thing. Yeah, I think it's nice that he does something he enjoys. He's keeping fit with the kids. You know, they're looking at what daddy did when he was in NS. And then I get time to go out, do my own stuff, do catch up with my work or, you know, go for my own sports, go for my own solitary sports. So I think that worked out well. Again, it, it really depends on individuals, right? I've also known certain daddies are more hands-on with academic, you know, so they're like a tutor. They'll teach them Chinese or math or English. And that's how they spend quality time with the children and the mothers might not have that patience for that kind of academic tutoring. So the mommy takes them out to go hiking. So it, it depends on the structure of the family. But and I don't want to sound like a workaholic, but it's really about people management, right? And leveraging everyone's uh, skill set. So this works out well. You know, I don't like a lot of outdoor stuff and my husband is perfectly okay and in his elements with it. So that gets carved out. But it's all in a work area where who's, what are your strengths? What do you enjoy doing? Then do it. I think the complication comes when something that both parties do not enjoy but I think we don't enjoy tutoring our kids too much. So then have to find a solution for that or suck it up. Yeah, but I think Lillian, that's a great point. It's so comparable, just as how we take so much thought around the kind of jobs, the kind of companies we do. Sometimes we don't apply the same rigor, the same depth of thinking on parenting and family responsibilities, finding out what works for us and daring to own it, to do it and split the work accordingly or the responsibilities accordingly with the partner. So I think that sharing it's it's truly helpful. And of course, this is what works for you and your husband. Everyone will have to find what works for them. Let's dial a bit back to the time where you say you took a year off. What led you to that decision? And then the next question is, what led you to come back to the workforce? Tell us a bit more about that. I don't know if all pregnant mummies remember, but once a kid is born, many of us do feel very, very strong attachment to the children. You don't have to feel bad if you didn't, okay? I think mine was a little bit extreme. And also because the second child was born with a lot of difficulties, the whole pregnancy was very complicated. There was like threatened miscarriages. So I I think maybe that made me very emotional when he was born and alive. So when he was born, you know how when the kids are born and then they cry? So he didn't cry in the first 10 or 8 seconds. Even now I remember. So that was very scary to say the least. Anyway, so after when he was born, I think I was so relieved. I wanted to make sure I spent enough time with the children. So I think with all the hormones uh, led me to the decision to resign from the corporate life to spend time with the children. But after a year, you can see they're growing well. And then I also thought my mom worked. And I was always very proud of her, very impressed with her. You know, she could do this and she could do that. And I wonder if I was expanding my skill sets and potential. And during that one year, because I did the kid stuff, and thankfully, I do have a helper. So I did a lot of reading on parenting. 
And I noticed the importance of role modeling, where mimicry is the best form of flattery. And many times children look up to their parents without knowing it. They just innately look up to them. And I wondered how my children would look at me if they knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't because of them. So it's different from a mother who's in her elements at home with the children, being the caring after for the family, right? Which is a huge responsibility. But I knew I wanted to do something else. So then I thought maybe the ambitious way is to find a, and to be greedy and find a way to satisfy my needs, my desire to have a career. So the hormones depleted after a while, right? So, you know, I, I realized I wanted to be back in the workforce, but I also really love the family, the children. They're so cute. So I wanted to be ambitious and find a way to juggle both and hopefully not kill myself <laughs> in the process. And I thought it was important to my children in that role modeling that they know what they want in spite of what society might dictate. Because, you know, I think a, a woman staying at home to look after the kid is perfectly legitimate, right? And in many instances, expect it when you, especially when you have two and with such a difficult pregnancy. And going back to the workforce almost feels like a being an irresponsible mother. Because going back to the workforce was important to me, I wanted my kids to learn the process of making decisions despite what people might say and to be able to stretch the goal and be ambitious to find a way that works. So I guess I was very disciplined. In fact, in the initial years, they all know between like five to eight and I'm not going to reply emails. I'm not going to reply calls. I'm not going to look at my phone because that was the time I come back home and I have to feed the kids and do all the mushy, you know, stuff with them. I was careful in planning out work share and then uh, family time so that everything was functional. Not everything was maximized, but I think it was optimal enough for me. And I think that lesson was the one I wanted to bring to my kid. Like if my son chooses not to work and be a homemaker, I want him to be confident with his decision and to be able to find ways to make it work for him, even if society thinks otherwise. Fully agreed. And wow, I think that parenting intentionality, it's something that really should be encouraged. Truly, it shouldn't just be the moms or the ladies who are allowed and accepted by society to, to take a break, but it's also about making it normal for dads to do so, right? As and when they, they want to do it. And ultimately, there's no right or wrong. Hopefully, through education that you are inculcating with the next generation, let's hope that the next generation will feel even more normal and okay to do it, regardless of gender. So, Lynette, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation. To kind of wrap up our time today, what is one lesson you have learned as a parent in tech? I think our children are going to grow up in a world with more reliance on technology and with even more sophisticated technology that is probably unimaginable to me today. Ironically, my philosophy is we shouldn't be teaching children about technology. We should be teaching children about philosophy and values so that they know what is core to be human, what is the core of humanity. And with that very strong core, to be able to therefore use technology to serve humanity's needs and not the reverse, where you compromise humanity's needs to serve technology. You know, interestingly, during this year, that's what we set up, SSTL and I, we set up space faculty, which is really to groom technology leaders of tomorrow, right? Bringing forth, you know, space technologies. But at the core of it, it's 
understanding the impact to humanity, the impact to the planet, that is where technology should serve. And that is the philosophy and ethos of space faculty. It is about training technology. It is about space technology, space entrepreneurship. We have all kinds of classes. But within every lesson and every class and every module, we go into the fundamentals of what it means for humanity and what it means for the planet. I know it's not one last word, but this idea of technology should serve humanity, technology should serve for the betterment of humanity and for the planet, needs to be ingrained in the lessons we teach our children. I love that so, so much. Technology will always be changing. And what we know now, what we teach our children today, probably will get outdated very quickly. But the philosophy, the values, those things don't change. Doing good, learning what it takes to do good, and being rooted in the right principles. Wow, I resonate so strongly with that. Thank you, Lynette. So if our audience would love to connect with you, how can they best do so? I have a LinkedIn and Facebook page. Should I send that to you or? Yes, yes. Please send it to me and our audience can connect with you from there. Okay, great. Thanks so much for joining us on the show, Lynette. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Parents in Tech podcast with me, your host, Tsingen. We hope you were inspired on how to raise kids and build companies. To catch up on earlier episodes or stay updated with upcoming ones, head over to www.parents.fm to join our community of parents in tech. There, you can also drop me a question, idea, feedback or suggestion. Once again, the website is www.parents.fm. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.